The following conversation is with Jerry O'Brien. Jerry is an actor with an extensive career in film and theatre. Jerry's also president of Irish Actors' Equity. In today's conversation, we're going to talk about everything from unionization to Starbucks, the tech industry, artist rights, publishing, and, and contract law. I found the conversation absolutely fascinating, and I hope you will too. So sit back, enjoy, Jerry O'Brien. Jerry O'Brien, good morning. Welcome to Eyes Wide Open. Morning, Connor. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Okay, let's get straight into it. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Uh, grew up in Dublin, in Ireland. Um, went to school here. Um, when I left school, I went into the theatre fairly quickly, uh, pretty much immediately after I did my leaving. Um, and was worked was that always theater. a plan, Jerry? Was that always the, the dream? I, I don't know. I had a, an inter interesting meeting with an old school friend from primary school many years ago after I was doing a show. And he came up to me and he said, you were the only person who ever became what you said you were going to become when we were playing in the schoolyard. And I said, what do you mean by that? I said, well, you always said you were going to be an actor. And back then, that would have been sort of 60s, late 60s, mm. primary school. And he said, nobody knew how to be an actor in Ireland. Uh, but it was still something that was there that I was always going to do. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I suppose it's, it's never been a choice for me. I didn't make a choice to become an actor. I think it was always going to happen. Um, and in Ireland at that time, there was there was very little sort of in the way of drama school uh, coaching or anything like that. It, it wasn't a career choice. Mm. Um, I grew up in the time when we you know, went into the three major jobs, the civil service teaching or Guinnesses, mm -hmm. <laughs> the three jobs for life. Um, so somebody looking to try and get into the arts, particularly when I didn't have a family who had a background in the arts, mm. um, it was difficult. So I found uh, a night course, which was Brendan Smith Theatre Academy. And it was the only theatre academy in Dublin at the time. And Brendan Smith was the man who owned the Olympia Theatre. And he was also the founder of the Dublin Theatre Festival. And he used to, as another aspect of his business, he, he ran a course for people who wanted to be actors. And I went to that one or two nights a week when I was still doing my leaving. And eventually, at an audition, I ended up working on my first professional paid job, which was around 1970. And that was in the Gate Theatre in a play called The Barretts of Wimple Street, which was directed by Ray McAnally. Wow. And it became a huge success. <clears throat> and I played one of one of several brothers in the family. Um, and it was a, a costume drama. And as the gays were very good at costume drama. Mm. And from that, I started to get jobs as an ASM, assistant stage manager and playing small parts. And I worked with the Edwards McLeamore company for many years. And there were a lot of small companies around Dublin, not small companies, but there were the main companies around Dublin, like Phyllis Ryan's Gemini Productions. And then Godfrey Quigley had his own company. And, and uh, you know, there was no major subsidies. People had to, it was made pretty much commercial. So I worked on various uh, productions and toured the country. There was a, a Limerick Theatre Festival. So I ended up in Limerick for three months of the year. There was a dinner theatre, which Godfrey Quigley did. So I toured the country with that. Um, we played in Dublin in the Gresham Hotel, 
and then in the Wexford Talbot Hotel. So that's where I got my grounding. Um, and it was kind of with that small amount of, of tutelage from um, the Brendan Smith Academy and then mixing with extremely well-known actors at the time, you know, who were my heroes. Uh, but they would really only have been known around the Irish theatrical scene. Um, there wasn't a huge film industry. Mm. Um, there was pretty much RTE and they did most of the um, <clears throat> television drama in-house. So that was the, that was where you you went for your main work. You went for theatre or you went and you worked for RTE. So I was very fortunate and I began to get a lot of the, the younger roles in theatre dramas and theatre films uh, or, or in, in radio dramas and or television dramas. Well, that was the other major uh, influence in my life was radio drama because RTE mm. had a, a magnificent radio department. And I got to work in the audio the audio section of that, if the audiovisual uh, industry, uh, with great actors in the RT rep. So I got to go, I got to know how to work the microphone, how to make instance script reading, sight reading uh, skills. All of those were developed, but they were developed not so much in isolation in a school. They were mm. developed by mixing with extremely talented actors. Mm. Um, so there was a kind of apprenticeship that that. I suppose the apprenticeship goes on to this day because I said before that the thing about this industry is that and this career is that you learn something new every day and every job you get. So it's it's one of those things. But that was that was my background in Dublin through the 70s. Um, so I would have worked most of the major theatres. I probably worked every town in Ireland uh, on theatre. Then I had a lot of work in radio and a lot of work in television. And I was extremely fortunate in, and it's it's a kind of an ironic uh, point in my career. I was cast in a TV series in 1979, and it was shot for over a year. And it was called Strumpet City, which was based on the best-selling book, uh, uh, Jim Plunkett's book, uh, Strumpet City, which was about the lockout in 1913 and the emergence of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union and Jim Larkin mm. and how the employers did all they could to suppress it um, because workers then, particularly dock workers, which was the, the lifeblood of the city at that time and carters, uh, they were they were working basically hand to mouth. And, you know, they, there were guilds in Dublin, all right, and there were very specialised unions, but Larkin wanted to unionise all of the 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 rest of the workers. So it was the uh, transport and general workers union. Mm. So everybody could have access to unionization. And would you say that Strumpet City then had a formative experience in your interest in collective bargaining, social justice, or had it developed before that? It, it would have developed before that because <clears throat> in order back then, in order to be a professional actor, you had to be a member of a union. You couldn't get work in RTE. You couldn't get work anywhere. And it was pretty much the same in the UK. You had to be mm. a member of Equity. Now, Equity at that time was a standalone union, small union, and it had its overheads. And we merged then with, the, ironically, in 1979 with the, the Irish Transport and General Workers, as it was then. It's now become SIPTU. Uh, so while we were filming Strumpet City about the emergence of the ITGWU, Equity became an affiliate of the ITGWU. Um, 
but my my interest was always there because every year we we every actor was a union actor and we always mm -hmm. talked about our terms and conditions so i think being a member of a union was something that uh, i don't know it, it, it was just inherent in being a professional it was a, it, your union card was a symbol of your professionalism within the industry so that's how, how, how difficult was it to secure that card jerry i mean what Oh, there was there was famous stories back then about how do you do that, how do you get it. There's the great story that you had to have a hundred line, you had to have you had to have a part of a hundred lines to qualify to get a union card, but uh, in order to get a part with a hundred lines, you had to be a member of the union. Mm. So every actor who wasn't a member, we had a provisional uh, card, and we'd, we'd count every word that we had in a script and say that that constitutes a line, doesn't it? The hundred words. So it, we simplified it then. It became a simpler process. Um, and we had, back then, you would have a provisional member who you'd be provisional for a year and then you became a full member. Mm. And it's it's much easier to join now. Mm. So, you know, uh, and, and this, this is with UK equity as well. I think once you get a professional contract, if you are in a drama school for a three-year course, it's very simple. In your last year, there's a special... Um, membership deal where it's five euro or something and you become a member for a year and then you take up the full membership fees um, because it, I think it really is important and as we go through the conversation we'll see how important it is um, yeah. to, to have an organization that will negotiate for you and will make sure that you have all of your basic what equity does it doesn't negotiate rates it, it negotiates a basic a basic starting point Hmm. where actors can then know that, you know, I'm straight out of drama school. I can start there. I'm not going to go below that figure, but I can negotiate above that figure. So it, 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 it sets a, a safety net with regard to your rights and how they're, how they're applied. Um, employers um, might argue that, what about their rights? What about well, the rights of the free market? They might... I, I totally understand union membership. They might also say that it could have been exclusionary back in the day. Oh, back in the day, it was a closed shop. Yeah, it was exclusionary. Mm. Um, you know, the, the the there's a whole argument against unions by employers, and it's quite understandable. And there's a whole generation, particularly after uh, the, the, the war on unions by Maggie Thatcher, who destroyed the coal uh, miners' unions in the UK, um, because they felt that, you know, that sort of free market thinking, they felt that the unions were stifling the the ability of, of society and people to make money. Mm. And yes, of course, people can make money, but there has to be a limit. You can't have the situation where, you know, large corporations can dictate to people how little they're going to earn. There has to be a balance in being able to make a living. I mm. mean, otherwise you go back to serfdom. <clears throat> Yeah, you want to go back to that situation. Uh, I mean, you can look at, at situations in America where most people coming out, and, and that's a huge free market capitalist economy. But you look at the professional people coming out uh, of of college or school, as they say, um, and they're saddled with, you know, hundreds of thousands in some cases of student debt, and they only pay that back because they go into the work situation at that point mm. in that much debt. So work is there. At, at their minimum rate and their minimum wage of $7 or whatever it is, if they can't get you know into, into one of the big executive jobs, and they're paying back student debt for the rest of their careers. 
So you have to have a balance within a society that that gives you a chance to, you know, if if you if you have a like if you're a solicitor or a barrister and you have that degree and you put all that effort in, get to that point, but don't start your career so much in debt that you can never actually get out of it. I mm. mean, that's a ludicrous situation to be in, you know? Yeah. There's also a correlation between, in the United States in the 50s and 60s, a lot of workers were unionized. And there's a correlation between falling salaries um, over the last 40, 50 years, income inequality, um, and the, the destruction of, of of the unions um oh, absolutely yeah i mean i mean the strongest america was actually at its strongest when it was just after the war when it had a very strong middle class which was protected and their work was protected by unionization and yeah. it actually had one of the strongest economies at that time but when you look at the situation where i think it was after reagan who who actually had this the Reagan economies of the trickle down effect, it was actually the reverse. It was it was a sucking up effect because all the wealth has gone up, and without unions, you have an entire generation of Americans mainly working three, four, five jobs on minimum wage just mm. to survive. So if you destroy the middle class, mm. then you only have the very low paid and the hugely wealthy one percent or five percent or whatever. And and when you have that situation, you know you you. It's very difficult to get out of a poverty trap. Um, and if you set a poverty trap for an entire uh, sector of society, then you're not going to have a healthy society. You can't, because how do you afford education? How do you afford medication? I mean, I was in Los Angeles recently and I was talking to somebody and we were talking about the people who, who were kidnapped in Mexico. There's a huge situation in America where many Americans go for their health care down to Mexico or up to Canada. And they still boast about having a great health care system. There's a current there's an attack at the moment on, on the NHS and the way you, you, you successfully destroy what is probably one of the greatest uh, societal monuments in 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 the world is the, the British NHS. Mm. Um, what you do is you, you pretend to fund it, but you fund it just enough to struggle on and you don't invest in it. Um, so then you say to them, well, look, we can't do it. We get the private sector in to do it. So then suddenly you only have private health insurance and you only have private health care. So unless you invest in these things, society invests in these things, then all the wealth will go back to those corporations who sell the health insurance, who sell the drugs, who sell this, who sell that. And if, if you look at the uh, at the demonization of that sort of social uh, cohesion, uh, oh, it's socialism, it's communism. And this is a, a brainwashing against the idea of having a very good, caring society. I don't see anything wrong with that. You can still have a capitalist uh, influence, but you can have a benign uh, market economy that reinvests in the people who are going to generate the wealth, not just yeah. not just keep them desperate for work. Plus, this idea that the United States, uh, which which is the the leader in the Western world, and what happens there tends to happen everywhere else, that the United States is not a socialist economy is completely false. The oh, it is partly yeah. socialist. I mean, you've got yeah. uh, it funds the public education system. It funds yeah. uh, healthcare. Um, there is a public. It's trying to system. defund those. If you look at some of the the, the, mm. the work that's going on in, in in the Republican Party, it's it's demonizing all of those public funded uh, 
services. You know what I mean? But mm. I mean, all these, all these, like in Silicon Valley, all all of these uh, wealthy tech companies who pay very little tax because of what they can do and their accountants, all legal, by the way. Avoidance is legal, um, but they they do tend to minimize their their liability to tax. Yet at the same time, around all their campuses are all these wonderful roads which are built through the taxpayer, the federal tax dollar. They're mm. protected by the federal, you know, the the money paid to the police forces. They're protected by the fire brigades. They're protected by, you know, the, well, the ambulance are, are not, uh, they're not uh, federally funded that much. But, you know, the, 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 all the stuff that the community expects, like like the, to protect it, mm. that's all socialism. Because yeah. that's, that's, that's people paying tax and federal reserves going into, our money going into these things. It's just like here. You know, we have these things because we pay tax. And if we pay just a little more tax and it's 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 invested into that, we have a better society and people are safer. Yeah. Um, and plus we the 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 government creates and builds the architecture of society for yep. private enterprise to Absolutely. exist and, and to run on. And those kids and many of those kids that are coming out of college, um, you know, the, the government is funding programs and scholarships, etc. Let me pose the counter argument from an employer's perspective and get your response to this, right? Mm -hmm. So I spent some time working in, in the tech industry um, for a US tech company, right? And if I'm a director or a VP of sales or engineering, or I'm CEO, for example, of this company, the, what I would say is, number one, look, we need to be agile. We need to move quickly. We need to respond to economic forces and changes. Um, I pay my employees $100,000 a year. I give them free food. I give them private health insurance. I give them pensions. Why, why would I bring unions in here? What is, what's the point? You're going to debilitate and affect my ability as an organization to, to grow, to change, and to adapt. What would your response to that be? Uh, my response to that would be, what's happening in the tech industry right now with their employees? If you're doing well and you say, oh, I'm paying you 100,000 and I'm doing this and I'm giving you free food and there's, you know, there's a jelly bean machine over there and there's a free Coke machine over there, but come in and you work for me 12 hours, 15 hours a day and you give me everything that you have and then the tech company has all of that, has all of the, you know, the the, the fruits of all your work and your labor and you know, the codes that you have generated. And then it says, well, now I don't need you. So you don't suddenly have $100,000 a year. You don't have your free Coke machine. You don't have your, you know, whatever you do in your sand pits in the middle of the office. But what, you know, what do you do then? You're, you're back. So the government has given all of these supports to the tech industry with, as I said, the fire brigades and the protection, the safety and the tax breaks and everything to create the employment. But now the, the, the tech industry says, well, thanks for all that. I'm going to dump all these people back out onto the dole, back out onto social security. You look after them. So if you have a union that goes in and says, well, look, hold on a minute. Let's, let's have a balance here. Let's say, okay, the hundred thousand, let's, let's, you know, let's, the hundred thousand is not the issue, but where do we put that money? Is there money going into a pension fund? Is there money going into uh, the state, you know, the state pension fund, are you contributing to that? Are you going to contribute to state health so that when the people are not working for you, they still have the benefits of all of that, that other stuff. Now let's have a look at the idea that they don't work a 12 hour day for a hundred grand and they don't have no, you know, they have no holidays because you're not paying for holidays. 
all of the things that <clears throat> you we have now that we talk about in society that we think are great, like, you know, you don't work Saturdays, although that's being eroded. Uh, you have a five-day week, you work an eight-hour day, you have holidays, you have paid holidays. All of those things, they weren't given out of generosity by the employer. They were fought for by people going out on the streets. Um, you know, when the ITGW emerged, you know, the, the workers, they were baton charged by the police at the behest of the employers. Now, very little has, you know, the, we've changed the costumes, but very little of that mentality has changed. If you think about, you know, uh, well, you know, we have the, the unrest in the UK and, and you look at people like Mick Lynch, people are not fight because the erosion of the value of work has meant that people are working way below the poverty line. Why are people working and still going to food banks? Why are people working and still being supported by minimum, you know, uh, family supplemental benefits? If, if you're working at that level, every worker should be able to work and have the dignity of being able to pay their bills and support their family. That's that's just a basic thing. And even, you know, you go back to the famous, you know, the allegedly famous remark by, by Henry Ford, who was berated for paying his, his workers so much. He said, what's the point in paying my workers if they can't buy my product? Mm. You know, I mean, if you can't, you can't then have an economy of people who can't afford the products that you're making. Mm. I mean, if, 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 if um, you know, Apple are creating these wonderful devices and they can't reach the maximum number of people who to be able to afford them, then what's the point of them manufacturing these things? Because their market is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. But if you have a good middle class, all capable of earning and going out and spending money, then these tech companies have people to sell their product to. So the unions have to address that balance because if you don't have the individual is at, at a disadvantage when trying to negotiate against a huge corporation. But when people come together and they say, well, we this is the skill and this is the asset that we have that you want, that you know, that you need mm. in order to, to be successful. But let's have a balance because we're going to make your company successful. But if you pay us a living wage, we can make you more successful because we can buy your product. And that's a, that's an oversimplification of it. But you've got to realize that, you know, unions arose out of, from the industrial age. And you go back to and read all the stuff about the Todd Puddle Marchers, everything about that, people fighting for rights. You know, we're not, we're, we're only a couple of generations away from sending kids up chimneys. Up chimneys, yeah. You know, do we want to go back to that? It's Dickensian, it's a Dickensian idea. The corporations might pose the counter argument. The stuff you spoke about there, um, uh, minimum wage, um, uh, uh, that stuff should all be legislated for at a government level. Do you mm -hmm. think it's a it's an issue that that government um, has let down society? Well, they they haven't. There's a minimum. There is a minimum wage on the very low in Ireland. Yeah, it's mm. it, it's ten euro and seventy cents or something like that an hour. Mm. So what's that? That's eighty eighty euro a day, five day week. It's about four hundred and something a week. Mm. But there is also what they uh, what's called a living wage, which is more than that. It's about thirteen or fourteen euro an hour. So the minimum wage is below a living wage. So that leaves you with that. If, you know, for people trying to survive to make up that difference, and the living wage is calculated on what it costs to be able to pay a mortgage, pay rent, buy food, pay bills, and just survive. So 
there's a shortfall between the two. So a minimum wage is one thing, but a living wage and then a wage that will allow you to live is probably another uh, level that you'd have to put into. Mm. Um, but if, if, the, if you're working for a company that is subsidized by the state because you're working at such a low wage that you have to go and get supplemental benefits from the state, then there is something wrong with the, with the employment. Why is the employer paying you so little? And why is the government subsidizing the employer by subsidizing your low wages? So you have to you have to strike a balance because these companies exist within society. They are not society. They exist within a society and they have to be fair and contribute to that society the same way we do. But as I say, you know, all of these the, 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 the issues and you look at, at what's happening in the UK, which is an example of a, a country that's just throwing itself down a, a, a an enormous well um, because it had a good economy and they've actually created a massive self-harm to their own economy and they're not going to get out of it very easily. That's why you have the workers coming out and saying, look, you cannot have a situation where nurses are going to food banks in order to be able to get to work to protect the ill in society. So what's, what's that about? Pay us a wage that you know, that we can deal with the inflation, mm. so that we can buy the food, pay our rent and go to work. Mm. You know, a lot of people are not going to be millionaires and they're not looking to be that. They're looking to have to have the dignity of work and the dignity of just a, a fair life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I don't. workers are not asking for too much. They're not asking for a no. lot. They're look, looking for a little bit of equality and, and a decent standard of living. Um Corporations' profits post-COVID are at a record high oh, yeah. globally. Um, COVID had a, had a, a significant positive impact in the tech space, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's in, on Facebook, everybody's at home, everybody's online, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it looks like during the COVID period that the middle class, not necessarily the middle class, but the, the, uh, the office keyboard industry were protected almost at the expense of everybody else mm-hmm. um and i wanted to throw another statistic at you um that, that might you might find interesting in 2010 50 percent of americans were according to forbes in favor in favor of unionization now that figure is up to 72 percent 72 percent of americans say they are in favor of unions um we're seeing efforts in places like Starbucks, right, oh, yeah. to push back against unions. What are your thoughts on the Starbucks experience and what's happening there? Well, I'll bring it back to what I do in, in as, as, you know, working in equity and with actors. Um, I sometimes go into, you know, schools, into the third level education. Um, and I ask two questions before I start speaking to the students, the drama students. And I ask them, do you know what a union is? And they actually, a, a vast, you know, some would say, oh, yeah, I heard about a union. But most of them say, well, no, not really. I said, well. and I said, do you know what your rights are? No. What's that? And going back to Thatcher, there was this whole thing. I mean, I remember at school, I was taught a civics class. Mm. And in civics class, they used to teach you basically how, how society worked. And I remember there was a, even then there was a short chapter where they, you know, they would tell you about what a union does and how it works and a brief history of it. 
particularly in the the, the manufacturing areas, um, because you were sort of like unions were for the working class. That's there was that type of attitude, but um, nobody knows. There's a whole generation of people who, like you said, in in the tech industry, where we don't need the unions because we're doing so well. But it's only when they start being laid off that you say. Well, maybe if we had a collectively bargained agreement about redundancy payment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that that would have helped. The great thing is with the Starbucks, and interesting enough, the Starbucks CEO has been ousted now because they found that his attempt in, attempt to union bust, hmm. uh, to prevent unionizations were illegal. So they got rid of him so that he had to go. So that's an interesting thing. I think that's very positive because it means a younger generation of people are now beginning to realize, well, hold on. We really are better working together. And that's one of the, the union uh, statements is, you know, stronger together because they can pick off individuals and get rid of them. And that's it. And, you know, there's nothing to protect them because all of the other people would say, well, did you hear what happened to Joe? He said the word union in the canteen and immediately some people came in and removed him and they got him out of the business. And he has no money. He has no job. He has no nothing. He's no rights. Mm. So if you equate the union, I mean, I know from negotiating for equity, the union has to and cannot make any deal that uh, undermines your legislative rights. So we are bound to make deals that are about your legislative rights. So if you don't know what your legislative rights are, then you begin to fall prey to people who say, well, look, it's, will you waive that? There's a few bob extra, but give us that. Mm. And you begin to undermine your legislative rights. So now you have no comeback. You've, you've nothing because you agreed to it. But if you are in a structure whereby people know what, what, you know, what you are entitled to under legislation, because there is legislation that protects workers and there's legislation that protects uh, creative people as well. If you know what that legislation is, then collectively you can say, well, this is how we wish to have that applied. And we want it applied to us. In that way. So I think what's happening in Starbucks is is quite amazing. Um, and I'm beginning to see more and more young people asking, how do we do this? What do we do? And it's like they have to learn to reinvent the wheel because, you know, there was a really strong union structure, which was destroyed back in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Mm. And that was a deliberate policy because they wanted to get us to where we are now. Uh, you know, with, with no unions, no rights, you know, you take your chances, it's the gig economy. And there's a delicious irony about the the Schultz, the Starbucks CEO, perhaps yeah. if he had been a member of a union, he'd still be in his yeah. job, right? And this is the thing that executives, um, vice presidents, directors don't understand is that someday you might need a union too. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it, it's not to be afraid of what's coming, it's to embrace it and look for the opportunity. Right. So let's say I am a CEO of a tech company. I am a, a director at VP level. If you were selling the concept of a union to a board, give me give me one or two things that you might you might argue that would be in their favor. Um, <clears throat> one, you would make sure that your company is compliant with all legislation. Two, you would have a very I'm not saying you can make everybody happy, but you would have a more content workforce 
and productivity would probably go up. Plus, you would be also, as I said, going back to the Henry Ford statement, you'd be paying people who could actually buy the product. So if you're a world uh, global uh, corporation and you're employing hundreds of thousands of people and because of that, there's there's a whole spend going on around your industry, then everybody can begin to afford what you're making. And if all the corporations are employing people, and remember, there's only about a... There's, there's, maybe 20 or 30 corporations, global corporations, that decide everything. Um, if they're all paying people fairly, then all those employees can buy each of the other's uh, product. So therefore you have a higher uh, sales and you have higher profits. Mm. The idea that, you know, if you want to make a great profit, the, the first thing you, you do is you cut the wages and cut the workforce. Mm. And that's been proven time and time again, not to work. That only works in, in, in protecting the CEO's salary and the shareholders' dividends. Mm. It, it, it's not good for the, for the company or for the economy. I've always felt that there is a huge opportunity here for a corporation um, to embrace a union. The opportunity is the, the competition for staff and high-quality staff is ferocious in the, in the mm. tech industry, right? Yeah. Union workers have lower rates of attrition. Mm. than non-unionized workers oh, yeah. they stay and they stay for extended periods of time okay you may lose your ability to make them redundant at, at a speed you had hoped for but you will get a loyal and committed workforce for an extended period of time and they're not jumping around and all over the place and the cost to hire in the tech industry is immense you know oh, and yeah. i think the attrition thing is, is a big deal and if you're the front runner as a tech organization and you're 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 ahead of all the others and you embrace unions and you go for it you have a competitive advantage absolutely what was i i remember reading and i can't remember his name the american guy in, in, a, in a small tech company and he made the decision to pay himself a, you know fixed salary but he still had, but yeah but he paid everybody in the company way above yeah. about thirty thousand, and people were saying you know that's not going to work mm. And they looked at him maybe five years on. His company is thriving. Mm. The great thing is I have a community of people around me. He said, I have, you know, people who are getting married and having kids now. Mm. And they have a happy home life. They come in. They make sure they work. The productivity is up. Um, and, and I couldn't be happier because everybody is now committed to my company. And like in the old days in Dublin, as I said, I mentioned the three great jobs. Well, one is the civil service and one, the other one was teaching. And, and uh, But then there was Guinnesses. But Guinnesses had a great unionized uh, workforce. And they were there for life. There were families that were Guinness families. Um, now, the model has obviously changed and, and, and all of those uh, benefits are gone. But that whole part of Dublin mm. thrived because of that, uh, that, that uh, organization, that company. Mm. And what they've left behind is is quite staggering, you know. Mm. Um, I know in the United States, in terms of public companies, there is a a legislative legislative responsibility on CEOs and the board to generate profit for the investor. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> and this is this is part of the problem. Statistically, Forbes have said that in the sh when you, when when a company unionizes in the short term, the, sh the stock price goes down. 
but over the medium to long term, the, the stock price recovers and goes up, according yeah. to Forbes, right? Because you just have a much happier, much more sustainable company. Um, but that legislative imperative on board members to drive investor and shareholder value is part of the problem. And then you have, of course, the lobby groups as well, which are constantly lobbying and lobbying and lobbying um, um, for cuts. Oh, yeah. Expenses yeah. cuts. Um, in terms of equity, so say I'm a, I'm a young actor. I, I'm in, in Dublin, right? Um, I'm starting out. Give me the two main things again that I get. Just remind every actor in Ireland um, what are the, the two, a couple of most important things you will get when you join equity? Well, <clears throat> the first is that you will have a collective bargaining uh, organization and you do need a collective bargaining organization because in the EU now we're bringing in legislation about the right to collective bargaining. Um, this government tends to have a, a, oh, it's over there somewhere. They don't, they don't look at it. I think a lot of our agreements now are becoming more and more Mm. Uh, not just within the, the theatre, but uh, good collectively bargained agreements. Um, you have that that protection and you're not on your own. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we now are looking more and more at the rights of the performer, because these are rights enshrined in two aspects of legislation. There's the Working Time Act and the, uh, and, and the employment legislation, which is what you get, which you have to have as basics um, at, the, at the heart of it. But then you have to add another uh, aspect for a performer and for what they call qualifying people and these performers, dancers, writers, poets, <clears throat> people who have a right under copyright. And copyright is, is, is quite a complex issue uh, and how you have to negotiate it is, is quite skilled. And unfortunately, we don't have a great history in Ireland of applying copyright to performers. We have this this wonderful idea that oh Ireland is great and we treasure and, and value our performers and our creative people and our writers and actors so much, and the truth is that we've been very slipshod about applying that aspect of legislation, that copyright aspect of legislation, to the protection of the performer. So when I became president, we it was it was a, a bit of a traumatic issue because we rejected a film agreement, mm -hmm. and I had to make a decision. I had been vice president. And the, the, there was a, you know, a situation that arose and the members of equity said, we're rejecting this. So I said, OK, well, look, I know what's going on. I have to protect the union because what happens if, 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 if there is no union? So I said, let's go. In, and I became president um, on, on that basis. It, it, and I'm not saying that as a boast. It was just some there had to be a change. Somebody had to go in who could manage the situation. So. The reason it was rejected was because that the rights under copyright had been minimized in that agreement. Not deliberately. I think there was there was a certain amount of lack of understanding. And I've spent the last two years now looking at that particular area, that particular right of the individual performer. So we have to now get to a point where we have a proper collectively bargained agreement that takes into account what they call the, the right under legislation, under under the copyright and related acts, two thousand, which was the original, which was the, the brought in in two thousand, it was the European Copyright Act. It says that an artist has a right to equitable remuneration for the exploitation of the work. So that means you, when when a film makes a vast amount of money, there should be an equitable payment that is ongoing to that. We had suffered under the buyout contract where you got a lump sum and that was it. You never saw another penny. 
Now, whether that lump sum was equitable too, I don't know. But then with the European Copyright Directive, which was brought in about, you know, correcting things in the digital age, which includes going into tech companies and the Spotify's, et cetera. Well, not just Spotify, but all of the, the, the streaming giants and everything, because it's there's a media. different model of exploitation that mm. had to be looked at. They brought in the European Copyright uh, Directive for the digital age. And in that, there is there is four, uh, there's articles 18 to 22, that are extra protections for the performer. And 18 says that the you know, performer has a right to a proportionate remuneration uh, based on the financial success of the film. So that means you have to have a variable within what they call the back-end deal. So you can't just give a lump sum because a lump sum is a diminishing return. Mm. So if I'm given, say, 100 euro as the lump sum, and that buys out all your rights for 10 years. Uh, you don't get any more. You don't get any more money than that. But the film makes a billion dollars. You've only got 100 euro. That's all you've got. But with the proportionate aspect of it, in structuring a proper licensing deal on top of your employment deal, which happens at the point of production, what happens afterwards then is there is a residual pool created based on the figures, the actual revenue generated by the film and that's what's shared out amongst the cast so if you suddenly make a film for a hundred thousand and it makes a billion mm -hmm. then you're going to have a proportionate share of that billion because what people are paying to see is your likeness your performance your success so basically it's it's intellectual property so the success of, of a film industry anywhere in the world including in los angeles is actually built on our property and we have to get a little bit of a lease for that if the property is used to an extreme like that. So that's that's what you get from equity in Ireland now. And there is a big change coming because we have now educated ourselves. We we know how the industry works. We know where all the uh, the uh, the loopholes lie within contracts and how they're worded and what they mean. Mm. And we now want to make sure that our performers are in Ireland are treated to terms and conditions that are equal to and not less than any other performer who's brought in from abroad and who will be working on their contracts, which will have what I've just described in them, the residual payments structure in them. So it's about bringing society around to realizing that this is not a hobby this is my profession this is what i do this is what i pay those taxes for um as an actor i've paid tax all my life i've been fortunate enough to, to actually get into an earning bracket where i've earned tax because most actors because of the structure of things like the audiovisual industry in ireland do not come into the tax net or else stay at the very lower end of it if i were to tell you what actors you know most actors earn you'd be quite shocked um, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> um, are you saying that the residual contracts in Ireland are subpar compared to oh, what absolutely. we have in SAG in the United States yeah, and in the absolutely. UK and across Europe? Absolutely, yes. How could we let that situation happen? It happened because we're a small community. And I, I, I go back to the 70s and 80s when, when actors were working with filmmakers and film, there was a company, there was a, an organization called Filmmakers Ireland, which eventually morphed into something else. And you would have actors helping the filmmakers because we were just an artistic community. We didn't have the, the business understanding 
Then came the tax breaks and the support of Michael D. Higgins when he was when he was Minister for the Arts and how he lobbied for that. Mm. But then there came along something after that. And I have, I have to be kind of careful because it's unfair to, to categorize. But people began to see, uh, well, there's there's a lot of money here. But how do we make sure? And again, it goes back to that conversation we had about the tech companies cutting costs and making sure that we hold on to the maximum amount of it. That we, back in about the 90s, we did, when co-productions were beginning to come into Ireland, we as a union didn't fully understand how the distribution worked. And yet, here's the interesting thing, at the same time, we kind of did, because back in 1979, the contract that I was put on in, in, in um, Strumpet City, because RTE had never gone and looked at the international market at that time, and they knew there was a copyright act back then. They went to the UK and we used a kind of, I think it was the early ITV uh, UK equity agreement, which meant that when it's Strumpet City sold all over the world, we got our residuals. Our, our, they weren't residuals then, they were royalties based on country mm. by country sales. And when it was repeated on RTE television, I got a fee again because you got your repeat fees because you have rights under the Copyright Act that if they're going to make it available to the public, you have to be paid. And that was all built into the contract. But somewhere along the way, people forgot how that worked. And there were people within the, the independent sector who said, well, we have to cut costs too. So let's do it this way. Let's let's just buy out the actors and get their money and, and get their rights. And we'll keep, you know, we'll, we'll tell them that that's the royalty up front, which it can't be because you don't know what it is, mm. but that's what we were told. And then producers said, now we can go on. And they kept saying that, Oh, well, it's somebody else is forcing us to do that. That's the buyout, buyout clause. That's the buyout contract. Yeah. And they would buy out your, your rights. And now they have unlimited usage for 10 years which I just analyzed at one time means I'm getting 15 euro a year if it sells all over the world. Um, now, I did a contract. I did a, a, a film in 2006 in Los Angeles, and I was I was put onto the, they won't let you work in Los Angeles unless you're put on a SAG contract. So they gave me a SAG contract. And the next year, I got double what I was paid in royalties. The year after that, it went down a bit. The year after that, it went down a bit because it depended on how much money the film was making globally. Mm. To this day, and this is what, 16 years later, 17 years later, I still get about two and a half thousand to three thousand dollars in residuals from that one job that comes into this country that I add to my earnings here and is taxed here. Right. So, so there's a societal benefit yeah, to this as yeah, well. Absolutely. And this is the point that I've been trying to make in the last two, last two and a half years or one and a half years. I've been lobbying government because one of the problems is that our industry is a subsidized industry here in Ireland. So when they have what they call an eligible spend aspect to it. So there's a, a 32 percent taxpayer grant, literally, to the to the production company here. Uh, based on whatever they spend with a cap of about 70 or 80 million or something like that. But that means you could have maybe 30 million going into an international film. But all the local hire actors are on the buyout contracts. 
But the US actor will come in, he's going to be on a SAG contract. The UK actor coming in will, will probably insist on working on their UK pact equity agreement. Mm. So they all have a residual built in. So when the film goes away and goes out into distribution, the Irish actor here is left with no residuals, basically probably on the dole. But the UK actor will add, and somebody said it to me, he will add to his portfolio of films that are generating revenue streams. And he will be paying tax on that to... HMRC, mm. the American guy is going to be paying tax to the IRS, uh, the IRS mm. and the Irish actor out of the long distribution, there's no money coming in, so they don't pay any tax here because there's nothing being earned. But the logical solution is simply to replicate the SAG Absolutely. contract. And that, that's that interesting enough. I was when I was over in Los Angeles for the Oscars, which was very pleasant, and it was very nice to see all our names there. It was great to be invited to the party. I was invited by Screen Actors Guild to attend the SAG Awards. And I had a long conversation with uh, uh, Duncan Crabtree Ireland, who's their chief negotiator and, and, and uh, general secretary, and also one of their negotiators. And they said, why don't you do what they do in Australia? Because the MEAA in Australia, mm. they have uh, an offshore agreement. So any American films shooting in Australia any local actors who are hired there, the terms and conditions that they're hired on, it's not a SAG contract, but are actually the same, exactly the same as the SAG contract. And then they have a slightly different one for local um, productions where there is no inward investment. Mm. He said, you know, because if Ireland has money coming in an investment coming in from the US and investment coming in from the UK, it's possible we could actually do a deal and have you know, the BBC film here on the UK agreement and have Paramount come in here on the U US agreement. It would be simpler because the two most recognised agreements in the uh, the international audiovisual world are the, U the UK agreement and the US agreement. So it would easy, you know, much easier to have just the UK agreement as the standard here, because that's already on the island mm -hmm. in in. Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland yeah. If I go 90 miles up the road, I'm on better terms and conditions as an actor than I am down here. Um, and there's been every excuse offered to, you know, everything from, oh, it's jurisdictional. You can't, you can't use that agreement here. But we are using it here. There's about eight or nine productions uh, using Pact here. All we have to do is to get an agreement between, you know, the producers and our union and UK who have said, yes, we will do that, definitely. And that would mean that the, the universal agreement for the UK and Ireland and the Republic of Ireland would be the Pact Equity Agreement. And there's a very important aspect to this, because when you analyse the Pact Equity Agreement and put it beside the Copyright Act and the European Copyright Directive, it actually is fully compliant with that. Even though, you know, the UK have sailed away from Europe, the, the their copyright and how they've applied their copyright is actually fully compliant with European copyright law. Um, so it makes absolute sense that we just adopt that agreement and work closely mm. with UK, who will help us administer it. Mm. So it's not it's not a major it's not a major problem at all. But what I'm wondering is why isn't there a standardised European Union agreement here? Is it, uh, because is, there are slightly be... yeah they're, they're, that's what they're working towards, but they mm. they can't. Oh, you see, the European Union is still a a collection of 27 independent countries mm -hmm. um, and they don't sort of uh, dictate 
So there would be slightly different uh, uh, legislation within each country. The government would have different um, ways of dealing with, particularly with copyright. Although there, for years and years and years, you know, going back hundreds of years, uh, we go back to the uh, Berne Convention, the Rome Convention, and authors. We go back to the early copyright years. I think it was was the Queen Anne brought in <laughs> legislation. It goes back to then. I mean, I was reading a history of legis of, of how copyright came out. And particularly with composers, there were situations in France where composers would walk into a restaurant and hear their music being played and they would beat up the band and attack the band and say, you can't do that without me being paid. So it, it goes back to, to that. So it is a difficult area because there are slightly different ways that uh, different governments have used to protect their performers. Unfortunately, I, I don't believe that Ireland has sort of applied any real sort of attitude of professional performers or how to protect them. Mm. And, and and this comes out of it, it comes out of a cultural thing. And I don't mean this in a bad way at all. Uh, the, the arts are, are they're a hobby. They're not a profession. They're it's a vocation and you do it for free. Yeah. And it's a bit of crack. And what's your yeah. real job? It's not a real not a real job. Yeah. What's your real job? Yeah. And but that's that's a societal thing because we, when we were reviving our, our independence and our rebuilding our society, one of the biggest and most incredible organizations in this world was the GAA. But they made it a thing that you wanted to do. It was an it was it was an amateur love, and it comes out of that, a love of your culture. And for amateur, uh, the amateur drama circuit in Ireland is an extraordinary organization as as part of a, of a community and a society. But it is amore. It's about love of mm -hmm. um, my my the way. I'm my job is I it, it's what pays my bills. It's what I do as a living. And I, I you know, I've practiced it over the years. I've trained. I've done everything I could to be the best at it that I can be. So therefore, it is my profession. So you you have to have an attitude that if if you have a cultural society, if you have cultural workers, you must do more than just support them uh, with with superb. And it's being looked at by all of the countries across the world. Our, our basic income scheme for the actors, or performers, and the creatives, that's great. But that that's predicated on the fact that we're struggling. Mm. Now, if we had a society that actually valued us with things like the copyright and allowed us to share in the in the financial value of our work, then perhaps we would be struggling a little less. And and things like the basic income would actually be, uh, it would pay for itself because if you have the basic income and then you're actually beginning to build up your residual payments and there's revenue mm -hmm. coming in from the exploitation of your work, you're paying more in tax at the top end. So mm -hmm. even though you're getting the basic income, you're actually paying it back. Mm -hmm. So it, 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 it's, you know, if you actually do something to protect the value of the performer, as, as it states in the legislation, proportionate to the value of the exploitation of their work, mm. then you have an industry that is being supported by the taxpayer that is doing all that a subsidized industry should do in that it's raising the, 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 the you know, the, the standard of living of all of those engaged in it. And by doing that, they have money to spend within the society. There's more tax pins collected. There's more money coming into the country than just going out. And that's the point of it. Um, I wanted to ask you about, okay, so we we are working towards protecting and, and efforts are in place towards protecting and making artists and actors experience better. 
what about directors? What about producers? What about um, lighting technicians? What about behind the camera? All, uh, well, actually, that's very a, a very good question because we just had a webinar, which I hope to have a link for uh, very shortly, um, which I'll get to you, uh, where we came together with the Writers Guild and the Directors Guild specifically, but also the Screen Composers Guild. We asked them to be involved. Copyright affects not just the performer and the writer, it affects all people who have who have an input artistically. Mm. Uh, in America, you know, uh, the cinematographer and various people, including wardrobe designers, will have a small piece of the back end deal as well, because they're part of the creative uh, structure that creates the film that is exploited. Mm. Uh, under Irish law, there are very I, I, there are qualifying people under copyright. Uh, they would be dancers, performers, writers. I, mean, I could pull it up on, on my screen now if I, if I had the time, but they all are covered by copyright as well. Mm. Uh, screenwriters, um, playwrights, authors, uh, directors, uh, designers, all of those people are covered by copyright. So yes, they would have the same protections and should have the same protections. Mm. So they would be entitled to a small uh, amount of money for uh, you know any exploitation or making available to the public of their work. Mm. So yeah, they're, they're included. And I want to include the, I mean, one of the things that I hope to do is is to bring all of the creative people together on, under this issue about implementing the legislation that protects them and implementing mm. it correctly. The legislation is there. Mm. It's just how do we make it work so that people actually see a financial benefit mm. from it. I wanted to ask you another, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you another question. I think we, we spoke um, before about this. It was a, a situation from the 1980s with a, a colleague, a friend of mine, um, who was in a band uh, called Rickshaw. And yeah. they, I think we spoke about this before. The, what happened was that they, they were in London. They were making a big name for themselves in Iceland. They went to London. They, their manager presented a contract to them at midnight in the recording studio and they were kids yeah. and they ended up and he, for, he told them, look, if you, I, I'm going to, to, to France tomorrow, I'm going to the, the United States. I need these contracts signed now. And the position they were put in as young kids is if you don't sign this, your career and is over. So they signed and what they signed away were their publishing rights. And it took them years, a huge amount of money, to get those rights back, right? I, that's that, that might have something to do with contract law, but do you? What, what is your response to that kind of scenario? Like, um, well, within the European Copyright Directive now, there, there is provision for a contract uh, readjustment mechanism. Under duress or something like that? No, well, well there, are, there, is a, there is a case that you can, if you're, sign, if you're signing something under duress, under Irish law, there there is there is a, a provision there. There's also a provision that um, I you can't unknowingly sign yourself out of your rights. Okay, okay. So that's written. In, you can't unknowingly sign yourself out of your rights. It, it, it involved a teacher somewhere um, mm. where they signed an agreement with the school, but it was in contradict. It contradicted the the legislation. <clears throat> so if you don't know what your rights are. <clears throat> then you cannot unknowingly sign yourself out of your rights. Hmm. So they, they kind of get around that by saying that you know that this is going to happen, so therefore you're agreeing that you're going to let us do it. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that could be an issue. But within the European directive now, there's what they call the contract readjustment mechanism, because there are a couple of things that you have to have to happen. One, you're entitled to a proportionate remuneration. But now under transparency, and there is a section on transparency, I forget which one it is, the producer is obliged to give you a breakdown of how much they've made out of the exploitation of the film, including merchandising. Uh, you then have a right to either without, it says without prejudice to legal, to um, a legal recourse through renegotiation or mediation, etc. You can go mm. back in and you can say, well, I don't think you actually paid me enough for the exploitation rights according to that. So let's see what the proportionate figure is. Mm. So you can do that. Also within the Copyright Act, uh, there is in the Irish Copyright Act, the European Copyright Act, there is a provision that if you have a dispute as to how much you've been paid with regard to remuneration, you can go to a controller of copyright or you can go to, uh, I think it's the commercial court or the district court here in Ireland. I think it's the handled in those courts. They're not in, they're not in the labor court, but you can handle them in those courts. And you can say, well, the contract said we signed that contract one under duress. We were put under pressure that we blah, 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 were told this. Mm. But now we see that it's made that. Mm. And we now want to, you know, address the issue of, of the remuneration we were paid. Mm -hmm. There's also within the, the, the Copyright Act, again, and I'd have to check this about remuneration, but it says any, you know, when you hand over your your rental rights in particular for a performer, and that's the, the rights to exploit in all the various areas. Uh, there is a clause that says that if uh, a contract sets out to deny or restrict uh, equitable remuneration, the contract may be declared null and void. So you'd have to pull all those things together and get your solicitor to go, let's have a look at all these things. That's from that clause, that clause says that, and that clause says that. Mm. None of that was done in this contract, and we were put under stress to sign it. We were told, mm. take it or leave it, or you're not going to have a career. Mm. We signed it under that duress, mm. and now this has happened. It's made a billion, so where's our share of it? A lot of there's a lot of things. There's there's a thing that happens. I was reading about the the woman who wrote the book uh, on which the Mean Girls franchise is based is signed an agreement and with Paramount. And what they what the agreement was, it was based on a net profit. And one of the things within uh, the film industry is that you know net profits are very difficult to find well, we do have creative accounting practices well it's, well it's the hollywood accounting yeah 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 hollywood accounting yeah. Yeah. um somebody uh, one of the great writers said the most creative aspect of the film industry in hollywood is the accounting yes, the accountancy yeah um but she is now suing because for all the millions that that it's made mm. she hasn't seen anything she hasn't been remunerated at all and this is one of the things that happens in 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 Ireland, they they offer a net profit share, and you have to say, well, hold on, a net profit doesn't exist mm. in the film industry. You have to base it on what is defined as the producer's gross receipts, which are also described as distributor's gross receipts. So that's what the distributor pays to the producer, and you allow for the cost of the film to be amortized, and then you start to share in the. So if a film costs three million, and this is a very this is very thumbnail stuff, if mm. a film costs three million and it makes a hundred million, there's a pretty good chance there's a, a a residual payment pool there that should come to the actors. Mm. But um, yeah, the, I mean there is that legislation, and there's that you know you have to be very careful because the legislation. I, I spoke to one 
solicitor who described the, the copyright legislation as being the purest form of law and the closest thing to insanity. Um, because they think you've just gotten to the point of settling it. And then somebody says, well, did you see that clause? And they go, mm. all right, <laughs> we're back to the start again. But it, it it is tricky, but it's not impossible. Because as you said, the industry in Los Angeles and the success of the industry in Los Angeles is built on everybody sharing in the success of the creative work. Everybody, including the people who create it. Um, and as we know, the Writers Guild are now going to go on strike in America. They're, they're, they're now renegotiating with the streaming platforms about how much they should get out of it because they're being cut out of the deal as well. Mm. Um, we have the UK agreement and all of the films that come into Ireland, they all exist in their own countries on that agreement. They're coming in here and getting a subsidy from the taxpayer. So they're taking stuff out of the country, which is our... Uh, intellectual property. So mm -hmm. why can't we assign it under the same terms and conditions? When they, you know, if they're coming in here, bring in your terms and conditions, we'll give you the taxpayers' money to make your film, but we get the residuals coming back into our country as well. Plus, That's it's fair. also important to, to recognise and uh, for any young artist or musician in Ireland today that might find themselves in a situation where they're signing stuff away, that there is a mechanism in place now. Oh, yeah. That you can address this this issue, and it, it shouldn't. It doesn't need to be a protracted five year mess that ends up destroying. Oh your... no, no. There's a couple of things that you should have in your contract, and one of them is a sunset clause. But now, under the European Copyright Directive, as I say, you have that right to transparency, mm. um, and that's for the audio visual industry. It's not just for film; it's the audio visual industry. So that's audio as well, and there is provision specifically for sound recording in the Copyright Act mm. for equitable remuneration. And you can look at that, which is which is very important. It's 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 under uh, chapter four and five, and it's the rights and performance. So go to the Copyright Act, read rights and performance. Now, the other thing that should happen if ever you're given a contract and somebody says sign it now, mm. it doesn't matter who you are. You say no, 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 hold on, because a contract for a performer is also a contract in the assignment of property. So you say, well, hold on, there should be a clause in it that says, before you sign this, you should make sure you understand it and take it to your solicitor. Because in the US, I talked to a colleague of mine, he said he was handed a contract, he, he was offered a very big part in a, a TV series, and they called him into the office and they said, we're going to offer you this, said, there's the contract. And he said, oh, great. And he said, where do I sign? He said, no, no, no. They said, you take that to your manager and you take it to your solicitor before you sign anything. And that's the advice they give you, because if you sign without legal advice, mm. You're in trouble. So even a contract here where there's transfer of property, mm. you should go to a solicitor. And you should tell the person who's offering you this, no, I have a right to go to a solicitor. And if they say, well, you know, we need it signed now, and say, well, then I'm signing under duress. Okay. Because this is, you know, the, these are property rights. And when they were bringing in the, the copyright and related acts in the debates in the Dáil, um, it was stated that uh, I think Tom Kitt was the, was the Minister for Enterprise who was responsible, but he said there is a huge deficit in knowledge around the issue of, of copyright. And there was, and the debates showed. But one of the things that emerged, he said that these, and it has been proven in the courts, he said these intellectual property rights are property and may be protected under constitution here. So you would have your right, your constitutional right, say, so, well, this is my property, I want to know how. But that's, that's a debate to be had but I think there is other legislation that would support it.
Okay. Uh, so yeah, these are very complex issues about about protecting. And that's you asked about what equity is doing. That's what we're doing. We're, we're trying to find our way through this to make sure that all of the protections, both EU and Irish, uh, apply when you sign a contract. And one of them is that you should get residual payments. What kind of time frame are we looking at to get that solved, Jerry? I believe it could be solved overnight. I believe it could be solved overnight. Uh, the people who are delaying on this are delaying for monetary reasons. Um, I've been pushing and I passed two motions last year at our AGM, which we can't ratify it, but we endorsed and approved the use of the UK Pact Equity Agreement, the film and television agreement, on any co-production shooting in Ireland. That's what we endorsed. It only takes... Uh, the producers in Ireland to come to us and sign up to that, particularly if they're they're working, you know, with bringing BBC productions in here, mm -hmm. which means the BBC are benefiting from taxpayers' money. They have the content and they distribute it all over the world. So why aren't our performers working on equal terms and conditions? It only takes the producer to come to us and sign up to that because we have a very close relationship with Equity UK. And they said, the minute they do that, Jerry, we'll give you all support that we have and we would go to the BBC and say, that's fine. So it could be done overnight. And uh, it just takes a willingness to do it. Well, keep striving for it, Jerry, because it's a it's a noble cause. Um, last question. What does the future hold for Jerry O'Brien? Uh, God, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I have no idea. I mean, I said one time that... The, Somebody asked me one time about actors and they said, you know, there are certain benefits within the union and about when you retire, you get this thing. And I had to look them straight in the face and I said, yeah, but do you know any retired actors? Mm -hmm. So my future is open to whoever offers me anything like any, any, it stays the same uh, as it was for any kid coming out of drama school. What's my next job? Mm -hmm. Um and the fact that that it's that precarious makes it a little bit exciting, even as you get into the new area, because every year you enter into a new phase of your career. Um, there's a whole generation of people I haven't been on stage for a long time. So there's a whole generation of, of theatre people around who've never seen me, never worked with me. There might be a reason for that. Uh, but, you know, I, I'd love to get back on stage and play the characters that I'm the right age for now. But whether I do or not, I don't know. I'll continue my work with the union um that may affect whether people want to engage me or not um you never know are you concerned is it possible when they see that you are the you know president of irish actors equity that they would mm, maybe we don't we don't want to go down that road in terms of casting is that possible do you suspect everything's that possible. everything's possible people have asked about that particular issue and and you know it, it's that famous phrase blacklisting mm. Blacklisting doesn't actually have to happen to be mm. effective. You just have to have the fear of it. Mm. So I don't know. Um, I know I question contracts, which tends to upset producers for some reason, you know, because I have, I have, a, you know, I have actually refused to sign contracts even after I've done the work. Um, and I say, I have to question that. I question that because they, they had a thing called special stipulations. And I go, well, who agreed them? So you have to keep doing that. And yeah, people are going to get annoyed with me. That's fine. But, you know, I work outside of the country. I do a lot of audio work uh, in the UK when I get the opportunity. There's audio books. 
Um, when I was over in Los Angeles, I still talk to people in casting. There's still a possibility of that. Uh, you know, as an actor, you never stop looking for work. And there are times when something just clicks and you turn another corner and another phase and another chapter of your career begins. Mm. And that's the beauty of what we do. I mean, we have to, I've endured years of unemployment um, and it's it's heartbreaking um, and struggling is is so demoralizing. But when you suddenly get that next job, all that's forgotten. Three years of struggle is forgotten. But it's like an addiction, Jerry. It's like a, it's it is, like absolutely. a, it's yeah, like it's a... Not, yeah, act, acting is not a, a choice. Acting mm. is something you have to do. You know, being a painter is something you have to do. Uh, you know, being a photographer is something you have to do. Being a writer is something you have to do. It's not it, it it's not a choice, you know. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I, that's not to take away from the people who do actually work extraordinarily hard in, 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 in their day to day lives doing other things. But a heroin addict would say, um, I'm taking my getting my fix there because it's not a choice either, right? So oh, I know. Well, I, I actually agree. It is an addiction. It's mm. it's both an avocation and a vocation. Mm. Um, it, it, one that it is something that I do because I love it, and one it's a calling. You know what I mean? It's mm. it, it's 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 everything. It's it's you have to create. You have to be involved in the creative process somehow. And yes, that can be an addiction. You can describe it as an addiction. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I did for a year. I worked outside the industry uh, in, in retail. And all I could do was think, how the hell am I going to get out of retail to get back into the industry? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's the addictive side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, people say it's not it's a hobby, but it's we, we invest. I think about half a billion uh, through subsidies, et cetera, into the industry here. It's supposed to, according to various reports, be worth about 1.5 billion. And I can believe that the creative industries are because it's what they attract, the invisible income. But you can't you can't base an industry on 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 the collateral uh, you know, uh, stuff that it attracts. I mean, you can't talk about having a huge big film shot in Wicklow, and that's great because a, a restaurant owner sold uh, 200 cappuccinos that day. Isn't that great for the economy? No, the people working in the, in the film, being well paid, being properly remunerated, getting their rights. Uh, uh, the actors getting their residuals for the next 50 years. That's what the industry is about. Forget about the guy having a bonus with his, with his 200 you know, extra cappuccinos a day. The people in the industry, if their livelihoods go up, if their standard of living raises because of the amount of work, rather than have them constantly cut to the bone, mm-hmm. then you have the industry. Jerry O'Brien, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Colin. Thank you.